As I reflect on that, and as we continue on in the book of John, uh, one of the things I think about often when the boys come home, they're going to experience so many new things for the first time. And, and there's, a, there's an event that takes place. We are all Southern Lancaster, Lancaster, Northern Lancaster, Lancaster Countyers, every one of us. And there's an event that takes place uh, just about every single fall uh, in our community. Some of you have this event take place in Ephrata. Some of you have it take place in Mannheim. Some of you in LS. Some of you in Solanco. Some of you in all different areas, but it's in the fall. And it's, it's our favorite time of year. It's one of our favorite events. It is the Fall Fair or farm show, right? We have to use both words because we don't want to offend anybody. It could be either or, depending on what community you live in. And, and that fair and that farm show season, we love it. It's kind of this time of year where our communities stand up and say, look how great we are. We got the biggest pigs down here. Or man, over here up north, we got the best milking cows, you know. And it's, it's really a testimony or a witness to the community's greatness, you know, that we live in and how wonderful it is. And most of these fairs, most of these farm shows have a parade at some point in the week and you know I remember as a little boy being brought to the parade and you get your chairs and and I don't know how it is in the communities that you're in but in Quarryville they set the chairs out about a month in advance you know the roads are covered on both sides and it's kind of crazy but you sit there and and it's one thing after another coming down the street that's just speaking to hey look at look at look at this community look at the cool things that we have going on here we're continuing our study in the book of John. We're concluding John chapter 5 today. And we are continuing to study the book through the purpose for which it is written. And today as we wrap up John chapter 5, Jesus is going to call forth a parade of witnesses that testify to His greatness. And we've been saying that the theme of John chapter 5 is Jesus is setting himself up as equal to and equal with God. In the previous verses, Jesus has given witness about himself to the prosecution that came from the Pharisees. If you remember, the language of the whole chapter has set us up very nicely, uh, kind of almost like we're in a courtroom, you know. And so in any good courtroom, when you're giving a defense, you call forth witnesses, and so today, Jesus is going to call forth witnesses that testify to the greatness of His identity and to the reality of His authority. But Jesus knew this. According to the Jewish law, a man couldn't stand by his own testimony. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And to this point... In John chapter 5, the only witness, the only evidence we have to the greatness of Jesus is Jesus himself, who's giving testimony to who he is and why he has the authority that he has. And today we're going to see him call forth not just one, not just two, but five different witnesses as we continue to reflect on the reality that Jesus is equal to and equal with God. And so our goal this morning is this then, to explore the witnesses that testify to the person and the authority of Jesus so that we might believe and have life in his name. If you have your Bibles today, turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 47 as Jesus lays out these five witnesses that testify to him. And as you turn there, 
Let's pray. Father God, we do gather together this morning with thankful hearts, knowing that you call us into community together for a purpose. And Lord, one of the purposes that you call us to is to study your word together. And so we open your word each week with the anticipation of knowing that you desire to use it in our lives. Lord, your word is living, it's active, and it's effective. Your spirit uses it to cause change in our lives, to change our hearts, to redirect our minds, to help to guide our thinking. And so as we open your word this morning, we're trusting that you have gone before us, that you have prepared this for us, Lord, and that you will, through your Holy Spirit, use your word in a way that will help us to leave this place and love you in a more magnificent way and love those that you've brought into our lives better than we are today. Lord, it's with this anticipation that we come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. Jesus is speaking. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have Never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? As we approach this text today, there's an interlude in these first two verses, and there's this giant lingering question that hangs over the text. Who or what are the witnesses that Jesus will call forth today to deliver testimony about him? And we might uh, mistakenly conclude this morning that uh, Jesus is actually on trial in our text. But the reality, what is actually happening here, friends, is that Jesus has put the world on trial. Jesus' birth, his life, death, and resurrection put the world on notice. The verdict, friends, is that we are guilty. He is innocent. And it is his innocence that's able to declare us free and clear from the penalty of death and the wrath that we deserved. Each witness 
that Jesus will call forth to testify of his faithfulness is like a link to the chain, strengthening the argument that Jesus is equal to and equal with God the Father. And throughout the Old Testament, we have a testimony of God the Father that is faithful. He's a covenant-keeping God. He deals with Israel in a loving way, and over and over and over again, he keeps his promise. And when we come to the New Testament, we're coming to discover, friends, that we have a Messiah who is faithful and true to his word. Jesus' testimony and the way that he deals with us over and over and over again should build upon the reality of who he is as God. Let's take a look together at the first witness that Jesus calls forth in our text. It's in verses 33 to 35. The first witness is John the Baptist. He says this, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining light, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, we've already met John the Baptist. In fact, there's a number of times in the first four chapters of John that Jesus has spoken about John the Baptist. But it's important that we recognize and remember the reality of the ministry that John the Baptist had and why it was important. Look in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. This is the testimony of John. The Jews, the religious leaders, these same people that are questioning Jesus right now, they had sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. The answer that John gave the religious leaders all the way back in John chapter 1, as we began our study, it was true. And it should have pointed to them, and it should have helped them to remember that indeed there was prophecy of this forerunner that would come and point to the Messiah. This is what the ministry of John did. And you know, the reality was the religious leaders, they missed it, and they shouldn't have. They shouldn't have. The Old Testament over and over and over again talked about this one that would come before the Messiah. In fact, they sang songs about this individual who would come. Psalm 132 verse 17, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, look, what John the Baptist told you was the truth. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting. Even though Jesus uses the testimony of John the Baptist, the reality is his identity doesn't depend on what you or I or the world think about him. Amen? Jesus' identity, the reality of who he is, stands on his own authority as he has communicated it in his word. And, and, And friends, the reason we have to stand on that reality today is because in our culture and in our world, we're going to go out there and hear all kinds of things about how the world thinks Jesus was or how the world thinks that Jesus is or how he acted. And they're going to try to interpret Jesus in their own lens over and over and over again and recreate his ministry over and over and over again according to what they want. 
A few years ago, Norman Geisler wrote a book. It was called Creating God in the Image of Man. It was a good book. It was a good read. I would suggest if you haven't read it, you might pick it up. But I wonder today if that's the reality of what our culture is doing with Jesus. Making a more culturally palatable Jesus. Jesus the buddy. Jesus the, the dude. You know, Jesus, this, this nice, kind friend, but not as Lord, not as Savior, not as God. And his identity doesn't depend on what John the Baptist said about him, though absolutely it was prophesied in the Old Testament John the Baptist would come. His identity depends on who he says that he is. And he loved us enough to send someone before him that essentially gave us the answers to the test. You know, I was talking to a student in at the high school this week. I was in on Tuesday talking with some of the students, and I was asking them how their schoolwork was going. And one of the students in particular was telling me about a class that he had and a test that was coming up in that class, and he was very nervous about the test. And I said, well, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the answers in advance? And he said, well, we got a study guide from the teacher. And she told us that the study guide had all the answers in it, and if we did the study guide and we answered all the answers in the study guide right, then we would do well on the test because essentially we had the answers. And I said, well, then I hope you do the study guide and, and then, well, you'll do well on the test. Now, I don't know if he'll do the study guide. It was optional, but I hope he does. Friends, John the Baptist gave the religious leaders, the Pharisees, he gave them the answers to the test. I am the forerunner of the Messiah. I am the one that comes before Jesus. They should have been able to ace the test to look at Jesus and say, this is indeed the Messiah. But they were blind. John was a lamp, friends. And you know, what's the reality of a lamp? Eventually, what happens to the wick of a lamp? It burns out. Or if it's an oil lamp, what happens? It runs dry. The oil runs out. Or the lamp in my office, that's an electric lamp that has a bulb. What's going to happen? That bulb, it burns out. But Jesus was the light of the world. And that light was eternal. And you know, in our text today, John the Baptist might be the first witness that Jesus calls forth to testify about the reality of who he was, but he wasn't the only witness. Look down at verse 36. There's a second witness that Jesus calls forth. This is verse 36 of John chapter 5. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The second witness that Jesus calls forth is the testimony of his works. The testimony of of his works, the works of Jesus. All that the Father had given Jesus to do, remember earlier in John chapter 5, he had said, all that the Father has given me to do, I am able to accomplish. And he was able to accomplish it wholly, and he was able to accomplish it perfectly. And many of these things were alluded to in the Old Testament. Born of a virgin, check. Rejected by his people, Check. All of the Old Testament scriptures prophesied to these future works of Jesus that he performed while he was on earth. Listen to the words of Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, the prophet says, the eyes of the blind shall be open. Jesus did that. The ears of the deaf unplugged. And then listen to this one. At the beginning of John chapter 5, what is the miracle that undergirds this entire chapter? A lame man 
by the pool of Bethesda is healed. What does it say in Isaiah chapter 35? Lame men will leap like deer. All of this was happening. All around them, the works of Jesus, everything that he was doing had been prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures which they had memorized and they missed the person of Jesus. The very works of Jesus were testifying to his person and his authority. And they had gone unnoticed or they had been discredited by the religious leaders of the day taking place in front of their very eyes, the lame men leaping like the deer, just as it said in the Old Testament. And folks not realizing that the works of Jesus were testifying to his authority and identity. There's a third witness that Jesus calls forth. Look at verses 37 and 38. It's the Father, God. Look at what Jesus says in verses 37 and 38. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. And we're going to hold on to that line because he's going to continue to press into that in verse 38. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is referring back to the one who sent him. He's referring back to God the Father and he's saying, if you won't believe John the Baptist, if you won't believe the works that I do, how about the Father who you know and you speak of from the Old Testament He testifies to me. But then he accuses them of this. You have never heard his voice. You have never heard his voice. And you have never seen his form. You know, there was a time in the nation of Israel where the people heard the voice of God. And it's testified to in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. It says this, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. There was a time that the people heard his voice. The religious leaders could have heard his voice. They had the, the word of God. Our children, friends here, our children at Calvary Monument, they know the answer to this question. I got to spend time with them on Wednesday night in, in our WANA program, and it was outstanding. I love asking kids questions because you never know how they're going to respond and the answers that they're going to give. But one of the questions I asked the children, I said, how do we hear the voice of God today? And one of the children raised their hands, and I said, yes. You know, they said, you hear the voice of God in the word of God. They knew how fabulous, how wonderful. In, in a class of children, elementary age, that they would know that today we can hear the voice of God, and we hear it, and we see it through how Jesus and how the word of God is unfolded before us in the Bible. But you know, the form of God has been invisible to men. John chapter 1, verse 18, and I love this in the King James Version. No man hath seen God, speaking of God the Father at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. And so it, it's one thing the religious leaders didn't hear His voice. They could have heard His voice, but they missed it. But to see Him is another completely different thing, because no man has seen God. But it's interesting that Jesus says they do not have the word abiding in them. For they did not believe in the one that he had sent. Because look at the next witness that Jesus calls forth in our text today. If you have your Bibles, look down at verses 39 to 44. The scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And you know, I want to say this carefully, but I want to say this clearly because I think we need to hear this today, friends. This is right here. We don't want to be guilty of the same things that the Pharisees were guilty of. There is a way that we can approach the Scriptures that is not honoring to God. I'll say it again. I think we need to hear it. I want to be clear, and I'm going to describe it to you, but there is a way we can approach the Scriptures that is not honoring to God. Friends, we can come to the Scriptures for our own glory. That's why the Pharisees had come. And like we said, they had the entire Old Testament memorized front to back. They probably could have recited it backwards to front to you. They knew it all, but they weren't coming to the Scriptures with the right motivation. They were coming for their own glory. They were coming because they liked people seeing how holy they were. And they liked being told how good they were, so good that they knew all these Scriptures, that they knew all these laws. They were coming for the wrong motivation. We can come to the Scriptures with an attitude seeking to condemn others. How many of you have been the victim of this? People proof texting and misusing the Bible with an attitude to condemn rather than an attitude to edify and to build up and to encourage and sometimes to rebuke, but with the idea of restoration and reconciliation in mind. We can come to the Scriptures with a motivation to try to win an argument. And friends, this is pressing more and more so in our culture today because we're seeing in our culture a world that's walking further and further away from God. And so our first inclination is that we have to dive back into the Word of God and go try to win all these arguments based on what the Scriptures say. But we don't have to defend the Lord any more than we would have to defend a lion. He's perfectly capable of defending himself. And so when we only come to the Scriptures with a motivation to win an argument, that was the same reason the Pharisees often came and dove into the Scriptures. We can come to the Scriptures as nothing more than just a daily habit or a daily routine with no real meaning. We, the checkbox mentality, oh, I, I did my part, read my, read my verses today, check it off, I'm good, I'm covered. It's all good. An unhealthy way to come to the Scriptures, friends. We can idolize the Scriptures. And the the indictment that Jesus gives to Pharisees is that they believed that from the Scriptures they were given their eternal life because of their knowledge of them. But friends, as we sit here today, we know that the Scriptures do not provide us eternal life. The eternal life we have is a gift from God. And He uses His Spirit through His Word to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives But the gift comes from the great gift giver, God. Knowing God's word, friends, hiding it in our hearts is so vitally important to our genuine faith and obedience. So I don't want to discredit that, but I do want to make us aware, if we're not already today, that there is an unhealthy way that we can come to the Scriptures. You know, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they were coming to the Scriptures because By knowing the Scriptures, they impressed many, many, many people. And what did Jesus say that they enjoyed? They enjoyed each other's praise. Look at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Friends, 
though He uses His Word to help quicken our minds and open our hearts to receive the gift of eternal life that He gives us, we must never, ever come to the Word as a way to garner or win the praise and adoration of men and man. Religious leaders, after Jesus had gone on and been crucified, the writers, uh, ancient writers Josephus and some others, talked about these many messiahs that came behind saying that they were the Christ and how some of these other men that came after Jesus, people were so quick to receive and welcome because they patted up and they lifted up and affirmed the Pharisees and religious leaders. But Jesus didn't do that. He exposed them for who they really were. His word in their life was true. And friends, I just, I think that when we are quick to receive the praise of men, we need to be careful that we're not at the precipice of a major fall. The praise of men is one of the most dangerous toils and snares on this side of eternity. The pursuit of or desire for man's praise can destroy and demolish a life and a ministry. I've seen this before in folks' lives, perhaps you have seen it as well. I've watched men that I've respected, that I've appreciated over the years, ascend to the heights of what we would call pastoral leadership. And they're getting interviewed by, by presidents, and they're on TV all the time, and they're going over here and doing this and doing that, and then all of a sudden something happens in their life, and, and where does everything go? It, it crumbles. It falls. Because they've been built up and they've been propped up on the praises of man. This is difficult, friends. It's difficult in life, and it's difficult in ministry because people are so quick to praise us. I was speaking with someone after first service who works as a nurse, and she was sharing with me how difficult this is because in her profession, people are so quick to give her praise and to honor her for how she cares for other people. And we want to receive that, and we want to accept it, but we have to remember where all of the glory needs to go. It needs to go to the Father. Many months ago, I had a, we had a dedication here, service of dedication as we began our tenure. And many friends and many mentors of mine were able to come and be here uh, for that time, which we very much appreciated. And one of my mentors, he does not attend here, but he's had a, a very major influence in my life. We were up in Lefevre Hall afterwards, and he came over to me very quietly, very subtly at the end of the evening, and he took me aside and he put his arm around me and he said, I want you to remember two things as you begin your ministry at Calvary Monument Bible Church. And I want you to bury them, keep them in front of you, uh, but bury them in your heart and remember them over and over again. And I was anxious to hear because I, I take what this man says with, with great seriousness. And he said, number one, no crowns. Don't take any crowns. That was the first thing that he said. And as I reflected on what, what do you mean by that, what he meant by that is that our crowns are not for here on earth. And friends, if there's anything good that comes out of this ministry tenure as the Lord has brought me to Calvary Monument, you need to know that those good things are only good because Jesus has made them good. It's not me doing this work. Uh, if there's anything good that comes from my life and ministry, give glory to God, it's because of Jesus. And he's saying, he was saying, do not take any crowns. And the second thing he said after that is, don't build an empire. No crowns, no empires. He said, your kingdom is not of this world. This is transient. It will all be gone. 
you need to be preparing for eternity with Jesus. And I thought, oh my goodness, as I reflected on those words, and I, I keep them um, right on my calendar in my office. It says, no crowns, no empires, Jesus reigns. Because the focus of our lives and the focus of our ministries cannot depend on the praise of men and the glory that comes from them, but it must depend on the power and the work of Jesus in our lives. He makes us good. Jesus makes us effective. We're not effective in and of ourselves. I'm completely ineffective when I operate on my own flesh. But because of Jesus, I might have some impact or influence in this earth and in this world because of what he does through me. I was watching this this week. There's a, an athlete that I highly respect right now. He, he's a quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. His name's Carson Wentz. He claims to be a believer. I've watched the testimony of his life. I'm seeing it. I'm encouraged by what I see. But a few weeks ago, there was an anonymous report that came out that said that Carson Wentz was a terrible teammate. Some of you might know this story. And they quoted all of these anonymous sources. No names, of course. And I'm going to just pause and say, if you want to divide a group of people, work under the guise of anonymity. Anonymity is one of the greatest dividers in the history of mankind. I despise it. And so I'm reading this report, and I'm seeing all these anonymous sources that quote that Carson Wentz is a, is a bad teammate. And I thought, oh my goodness, like, I wanted to come to his defense. No, no, he's not. He's great. Look at all these things that he did. And he had this great opportunity, I thought, to stand up and say, no, see, look at all these teammates that came out in defense of me. Almost every player on the team came out in defense of him. He could have said, these guys, they all speak to my greatness and how great of a teammate I am. And look at all the great things I did in my first few seasons. I'm a great teammate. But you know he didn't do that. You know what he did? He stepped up to the microphone and when they asked him about it, he said, you know, I'm probably not a great teammate. He said, in fact, I, I believe there is selfishness in, their, in my heart. And he said, you know, the reality is I think there's selfishness in all of our hearts. So I'm not going to stand up here and try to defend myself and try to make myself out to be this great teammate. I'm just going to tell you that I know that I'm not. And I, there's work to be done in my life. And I thought, wow, talk about an, op an opportunity to take a crown, an opportunity to build an empire, to defend himself, and he didn't do it. And, and friends, the reality is, as I stand before you this morning, I just tell you, and you just need to ask my children if you want to know this for sure, I'm not perfect, all right? And, and I'm going to tell you in the tenure of my ministry here, I would tell you to ask my wife, but she's very gracious, so I don't, I'll tell you, my children will be less gracious, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, in the tenure of my ministry here, I will let you down. I will do it. I, and, and maybe some of you are like, well, yeah, you already have. You know? <laughs> oh, good. You got a head start, so there you go. <laughs> because, friends, like you, I'm a man that desperately needs Jesus. And, and I'm a man that desperately needs the Lord to work in and work through my life. I'm, I am a saint called out just as you are a saint called out. And as you struggle, I struggle. And as there are days that you operate and struggle in the flesh, there are days that I operate and struggle in the flesh. And there might be a time where you see me in the community or in public and maybe I lose my temper. I don't, I don't know. Perhaps it happens. It does. Um, but I would like to believe that's not the character of my life. 
And I would like to believe that Jesus is working in me and through me in a way that might help me to be effective in the time that he's given me here on this earth. You know, and, and, and there's always that weird kind of thing in ministry. Well, can we, can we even give each other a compliment then? You know, can I compliment you? Because what are you going to do with that? You know, is it going to, are you going to be relying on my praise then? And the reality is, no, we can compliment one another. We can build one another up. The Bible tells us to edify one another and build each other up. But the problem is when we rely on those compliments and we rely on those niceties to keep us going, right? That's when it becomes dangerous because then we're relying on that praise. We're relying on getting that compliment. We're relying on being made to feel good for what we've done. We can't rely on those things. We can receive them. We can accept them. They can build us up. The Lord can use them in mighty ways to help affirm our ministries, but we cannot rely on those praises and those niceties to keep us going day in and day out. We have to trust in the power of of Jesus. I don't want us to be seeking crowns here on earth, friends. I don't want us to be building up our little babbles, you know, here on earth. It's not what the Lord has called us to. Our citizenship is in heaven. The crowns that we desire should be stored up in heaven. The empire that we want is an eternal empire that's already been prepared for us in glory. And it was the religious leaders and the Pharisees who were accused by Jesus of this in John chapter 12. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Friends, let's not make that true of our lives and our ministries here on earth. And so Jesus calls forth the witness of John the Baptist. He calls forth the witness of his works. He calls forth the witness of God the Father. He relies on the witness of the Scripture. And then he's going to press even deeper now into that because the religious leaders, they had started to receive these crowns and notoriety. They had built this little empire all to themselves. And Jesus says, well, there's a person that's part of your little empire that will accuse you. It doesn't need to be me. And look down at verses 45 to 47 as Jesus calls forth his last witness, the witness of Moses. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It wouldn't need to be Jesus accusing the religious leaders. This man who was part of their own little empire that they had built unto themselves, Moses, he would be enough to accuse them. And we might ask ourselves the question this morning, church, maybe you say, well, how did Moses' writings testify to Jesus? How did they point to the coming of this Messiah? Where did Moses write of this Messiah? Where did it happen? And really the answer is all over his writings. There's a specific example I want to give us this morning, but then there are some types that followed Moses throughout his ministry that all pointed to the coming Messiah. The specific example is here in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. Look at what is written in the law. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Oreb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. 
And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. Remember John chapter 1 through 5, we've been looking over and over again at the power of the words of Christ, and he shall speak them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And now we have a a, a little bit of a future fulfillment of this in Joshua, a further fulfillment down the road and maybe King David, but the perfect fulfillment of this prophecy came in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of this. But there were more specific events from Moses' life that look forward to the coming of Jesus, and they're all over the life of Moses and his ministry. Moses wrote of the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham's promised son, And while Abraham did not have to go through with the sacrifice, Jesus was found to be the perfect, unblemished lamb who would be given to atone for our sins and take the death that we deserve. Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of Abraham's sacrifice. Following this, there was an event in the history of Israel that we know today as the Passover where the blood of the lamb was spread over the doorpost of the Israelites' houses so that the angel of death would pass over them. Friends, Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb, and his blood suffices to cover our sins for eternity. And through his blood, we've been declared innocent before the Father. His wrath, the Father's wrath, being turned away by the works of Jesus. As the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, they were temporarily provided with manna from heaven. Jesus is the perfect bread of life those who feast on jesus will never hunger two times in the ministry of moses's leadership over the nation he brought forth water from rocks to hydrate a desperate and thirsty people who were wandering around in the wilderness in john chapter 4 jesus is the living water those who drink shall never thirst again and when fiery serpents were sent among the people in the wilderness moses by the Lord's direction, took a a staff and he crafted a serpent onto it. And when he lifted the staff up and the people lifted their eyes up to see the serpent on the staff, they were healed of the wounds. And just as the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, so too would Jesus be lifted on the cross that all who look to Jesus might live. Over and over and over again, In the testimony and the writing of Moses, there are arrows that are pointed at the target of Jesus. And as well as the religious leaders knew the scriptures, as clear as they thought they understood them, they missed that over and over and over again. And Jesus knew that if the Pharisees had blindly missed these references to the Messiah in Moses' writings, they would indeed not acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. And so our question, friends, as we wrap up our text this morning, how should our lives look in light of these realities? And really, there's three clear applications, I believe, in our text this morning. The first is this. Are we coming to the Word of God with the right attitudes? I have to tell you, one of the things that is most exciting for us about Calvary Monument Bible Church is the value that is placed on God's Word. That's incredibly important to us in our ministry. But friends, we want to be careful that we don't approach God's word with the wrong heart or the wrong attitude or the wrong motivation. We need to hide the word of God in our hearts so that we don't sin against him. 
But we cannot do it for our own glory. We must do it for His glory. So that through His Word, we might grow in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other. And His Spirit might produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. How are we coming to the Scriptures, friends, in our daily lives? How are we approaching them? And then two, what praise are we seeking in our lives? What praise are we relying on? Is the work of Jesus in our hearts and our lives and and the pursuit of God's glory enough? Or are we relying on the praise of man to prop us up and to make us feel good? Friends, there's no crowns for us to be had down here. There's no empires for us to build. Jesus must reign. And He must be evident in every part of our lives. And finally, I will say this as we conclude John chapter 5. Jesus has given this beautiful defense of himself as being equal to and equal with God. He's called forth his witnesses. And the whole purpose of John's book, the whole purpose for writing is so that we might what? Believe. Believe. And so if you sit here today as we conclude John chapter 5, if you have never believed, If Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, then today I would tell you that Jesus might be drawing you to Himself. It could be time for you to believe. And if there's a conviction in your heart and in your mind, if you're feeling like, oh man, I don't know if I have ever understood Jesus to be the person that He says He is in His Word, then I would just pray that that conviction would grow and grow and grow until the Lord draws you to a belief in himself. He's available to you. He's drawing you to himself. A relationship with Jesus is possible. The Bible tells us all we need to do is believe to receive that gift of eternal life. And so I would tell you today, you must believe. And I would say if you leave this place today and you don't know Jesus, I will tell you this. I will pray that you will not have peace. I'm sorry. But I'll pray that you do not have peace until your heart finds its true peace in the true peace giver that is Jesus. That He would stir your heart, that He would stir your mind in a way that would just cause you to have to give your life to Him. Not relying on a choice that you make, but on His power and His will for your salvation. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, You are indeed a wonderful Savior. You've provided Your Son for us as an atonement for sins. Lord, He gave His life on the cross, a sacrifice, an example of the kind of love that You call us to in our daily lives. And Father, as we look at at Your Word this morning, the words that You give us, our prayer is that we would not approach the Scriptures in a way that is not honoring to you. Lord, help us to come with the right mentality, with the right attitude, with the right mindset, that you might be honored in our pursuit of knowing you. And Lord, that making your name great among the communities that we live in, the neighborhoods that you've placed us in, the relationships that you've brought to us, that would be the priority. That you would look massively huge and magnificent and that we would be small behind the greatness of who you are. Lord, as we wrestle through the day-to-day, 
Many of us work in professions, go to work every day, live in neighborhoods or communities where we find the praise of man to be delightful at times. And Father, I, I pray that you would give us a proper perspective. That we would not rely on the praise of other people as you did not rely on the praise of the Pharisees or religious leaders for your glory, Lord. I pray that we would not rely on the praise of men for our identity. Lord, I pray that our identity would be found in you, that we would be wholly found in you, and that your glory and the work that you have done in our lives would be enough to live for you. And Lord, we wouldn't pursue or seek after the praise of men trying to please men. It's such a tiresome, tiresome lifestyle. But we would just live to bring you honor and glory, seeking your praise. That at the end of our lives, you might say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that's the only praise we ever would need to hear. And Lord, finally, as we're here today, there's a strong reality that there are some in this room that do not know you. They don't have a relationship with you. They've never began a relationship with you. You have not yet revealed yourself to them in a way that's leading them to salvation. And so, Father, this morning we pray that you might draw them to yourselves. That if they leave this place, when they leave this place today, they would not know peace until their heart rests on you who gives great peace. Father, we pray that you would give them boldness to ask questions, that you would give them courage to seek the answers to the questions that they have that cause their hearts to be troubled, even in these moments, that they would know that there are people available to talk, to pray, and that you would direct into their paths the people that you might use. And Father, we will celebrate and rejoice as you continue to bring many sons and daughters to glory because you are powerful to bring salvation father as we leave this place today our prayer would be that our lives would be changed by the power of your word that we would be affirmed by the strength of the witnesses that testify of your power and your authority and that in leaving here we might be able to love others better than we were loving them today and that you might help us to grow in a greater love and appreciation for you. That we might be thankful for who you are in our lives. Father, we give you all the glory and all the honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week.